Hello, and thanks for joining us on the Main Question Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Liznett. We've been away for a bit, and it's not hard to guess the reason why. The coronavirus and the disease it causes COVID-19 has upended life as we know it. It is first and foremost a pandemic and a health crisis, but it's brought economies, education, social interaction, and every other aspect of the world we know to a standstill. We thought it would be a good time to get educated about the cause of all this mayhem. Just what is a virus? How do they work? What causes some to break out and cause widespread disease? In short, our main question for this podcast, why do viruses go viral? To delve into this complex question, we asked someone who's working on the front lines of this issue to break it down for us. Melissa McGinnis is an assistant professor of microbiology at UMaine. In her lab, about a dozen students and staff investigate just how it is that viruses invade human cells and cause disease. She helps us understand the science behind this process, how our immune system responds or doesn't respond, and what may perhaps be some positives that come out of this ordeal that could advance science and medicine. With social distancing, we obviously weren't able to physically record this episode the way we normally do, but like everyone else with Zoom calling and cell phones, we were able to make it work. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time, and uh, I know we couldn't get together physically to do this, but uh, for you to add yet another Zoom meeting to your list, we appreciate that. Sure, I'm happy to be here. Obviously, everybody is talking about uh, coronavirus, COVID-19. Most people really only think about viruses when flu season hits or they get a cold, but when something like this happens, it obviously changes the the game totally. But as someone who, who studies these things for a living, what strikes you most deeply as you think about how this whole thing is unfolding? Yeah, it's been pretty amazing. I think we're really living through an unprecedented time. And you're right, I think about viruses all the time. And we're always thinking about how how viruses can impact human health and the greater impacts that it can have on the world. But we're actually seeing that unfold right before our eyes. And we're seeing the impacts on human health, but we're also seeing the impacts that it's having on our social interactions as well as our global economy. And I think that we're going to look back at this time as a point in history that we're all going to remember. And so just thinking about the fact that we're living through this is really quite incredible. And the fact that I think now people are thinking about viruses and realizing the impact that viruses can have not only on human health and the economy and the greater world, um, but viruses are becoming more of a household name. And I think people maybe learning more about viruses. And so, of course, I think there will be some silver linings that come out of all of this as well. And that might be in part that people are motivated to learn more about viruses and other microbes, and they may be more motivated to learn more about science in general. Let's maybe do some virus 101 if if you're game for that. Yeah, definitely. What exactly is a virus? How does it differ from a bacteria? Is it alive as we think of things being alive? Uh, Let's start there. Okay, so viruses are not alive, and that is one way in which it differs from a bacteria. So a bacteria is alive, and a bacterial cell can actually replicate on its own. It can replicate on a surface, like let's say on the surface of a desktop, on its own. But a virus cannot. A virus requires a host cell in order to replicate or duplicate itself. And so that's one major difference. And because of that, viruses are defined as obligate intracellular parasites. That's because they rely on the host cell. So they actually 
are thought of really as like these compact molecular machines. And they bring with them only the essential ingredients that they need in order to carry out their replication cycle. And they rely on the host cell for all of the other machinery that they need. And so they use the parts of a host cell to find the cell, attach to it, get into the host cell to invade it. And then they use the host cell in order to replicate the virus and make more of those viruses. And then the virus can get out of the cell and it can spread to infect new cells and new hosts. So that's one way in which it's really different from a bacteria because it's reliant on that host cell. And because of that reliance, that means that the virus is not actually alive. It's more parasitic. It's parasitic in nature, if you think about it like that. So how many different kinds of viruses do we even know how many there are and how many of them are dangerous or deadly or capable of doing sort of what we're seeing now? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's actually estimated that there are 10 to the 31 viruses in the biosphere. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a really huge number. And that's because there are viruses that infect animals like mammals and humans like us, right? But there are also viruses that infect bacteria, and those are called bacteriophage. And because of that, and you know how plentiful bacteria are in our world, and everyone has heard about the microbiome, but all of those bacteria are actually infected with viruses. And so that leads to this exponential number of viruses that make up the biosphere. However, we have many viruses that infect us and don't actually cause an illness. And we also have viruses that might lead to really acute illnesses, things that are self-limiting in nature and that they resolve because we have a robust immune system. And then of course we have viruses that can cause things like chronic infections like HIV, which ultimately can lead to AIDS. And then we have viruses like the one we're experiencing right now that can lead to some pretty serious infections and ultimately can be fatal in some people. Where did the name coronavirus come from? And maybe talk about how it compares with other viruses we hear about, the flu or bird flu or SARS and norovirus, uh, you know, some others that have been in the news in the recent past. Yeah, that's a really great question. So coronavirus actually comes from the corona-like appearance of the virus when it's observed by electron microscopy. So electron microscopy is a, a type of microscopy that's used to look at the overall structure of a virus. And when coronaviruses are observed by electron microscopy, because of the spike proteins that stick out of the virus, everyone maybe has seen this in the news, these little spikes that stick out from the surface of the sphere of the virus, that creates this little corona-like appearance, kind of like a halo around the virus. And that's where the name corona comes from. And the name COVID-19 for the disease actually comes from the CO for corona, VI for virus, and D for disease. And that's how COVID-19 was designated. And then, of course, because the disease began in 2019. And the World Health Organization, the WHO, is the group that designated COVID-19 as the official name for the disease that was caused by the novel coronavirus. And then the name of the virus, that's the causative agent of COVID-19, is SARS coronavirus 2. And that's because it was very, very similar 
upon sequence um, similarity identification that it was very close to SARS coronavirus. And SARS coronavirus was responsible for another outbreak that occurred in China in 2002-2003. So when they compared these two viruses, the original SARS coronavirus, with the new novel coronavirus, they found they were very highly similar. And so that's why they gave it the name SARS coronavirus 2. And the name of the virus actually comes from the International Committee on the Taxonomy of Viruses, the ICTV. And this is a group of scientists that get together and name viruses. And there is a specific coronavirus study group, and that's made up of a bunch of experts on coronaviruses. And when they got together, that's what they decided would be the official classification for this virus specifically. And really the names come from how they classify the viruses. And this is based on really the phylogeny of the virus. And because of that, they recognized it as a sister to the SARS coronavirus. On a scale of one to 10, I mean, where does coronavirus rank? I mean, in terms of its uh, potency or, or, you know, damage it causes? I mean, is it, is it off the scale or is it somewhere in the middle or where, where, where would it be? Well, I think, you know, this is a really interesting virus that we're seeing right now. So I just mentioned the SARS coronavirus outbreak of 2002-2003. And just to back up for a second, SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And this outbreak occurred in China, and it was thought that SARS spread from bats to civets. And in this outbreak, there were about 8,000 cases and about 774 deaths. And then there was another coronavirus outbreak that occurred in 2012, and that was called MERS, and it stood for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And in that outbreak, there were about 2,500 cases spread around 27 countries, and the fatality rate was actually much higher. It was 34%. And so MERS was actually much more fatal, but the number of cases was really limited. And that indicates that there wasn't really a good person-to-person transmission. What's really interesting about the current coronavirus outbreak is that there is such a high person-to-person transmission. And also what we're seeing is that there is a really high rate of transmission from asymptomatic individuals. And I think that's why it's been so difficult to track because people are spreading the virus and they don't even know that they're sick. That's what, be, that's what I mean by asymptomatic. And so when those individuals are out, you know, really at the grocery store or they're interacting with their family members, they don't even realize that they are actually shedding the virus. And the virus can be spread in respiratory droplets. And when those respiratory droplets are spread from the person through a cough, or sneeze, or a deep exhalation, then those respiratory droplets can actually transmit the virus to another person, but also it can be transmitted onto a surface. And once the virus is on a surface, it can last on the surface for up to three days, and it's stable there. So then if another person comes along and touches the surface, then they may be able to pick up that virus, let's say on their hand, And then they can transmit it to themselves, either by touching their 
nose or their mouth or their face or by eating. And so that's something that has been really so tricky about this virus is the way in which it has spread and the fact that it has such good transmission rate from human to human. You talked about uh, a big, big number of viruses out there. That's a, a 10 with a lot of zeros after it. So I'm not sure we can count that high. But talk about uh, why some viruses like this one, why do some go viral, so to speak? Yeah, that's a great question. Why do they go viral? Um, one of the reasons why this virus has gone so viral is because it's a novel virus that hasn't been circulating in the human population before. And so we don't have immunity to this virus. So for instance, influenza virus circulates every season. And so we always have a flu season. It's usually something that occurs from late fall through the winter time, let's say around March. And we have all experienced influenza virus before in the environment. We've most likely been exposed. And so we have some developed immunity to influenza virus. But influenza virus can mutate and it's actually quite good at mutating. And that's why we have to get a seasonal influenza vaccine each year. On the flip side, coronavirus hasn't been circulating in the human population. It's thought that this virus emerged from bats and it's not known if there was an intermediate reservoir between bats before it jumped over into humans. But because of that, we don't have any existing immunity. And therefore, the virus is able to overcome us. In other cases, we have really this race between the virus and the immune system. But in this case, the virus is able to overwhelm us. And until we have a good vaccine that's developed or maybe a good antiviral treatment, we really have to rely on whatever immunity we do have. And it's not to say that we're not developing an immune response. We are. It's just that we don't have a memory immune response in which we can elicit a very robust immune response in a rapid fashion. So we have to sort of evolve to that point. So um, I, I know you talked about the, um, the spikes on the virus and then those are the proteins. So... Maybe you can give us in, in 51 seconds a microbiology lesson about how this protein, I, I gather it's protected by a layer of fat, and that's what invades a person's cell. So is that the process by which a virus basically infects someone? Is that how that works? Yeah, so I can explain that. So we can think about the virus as a sphere, and within that sphere is the viral genome. Viral genomes can be either DNA or RNA. And the genome is surrounded by what's called a capsid, okay? And that's really just a protein shell. And then that shell, that capsid, can be further surrounded by a lipid envelope, which is made up of fats, like you said. And then surrounding that layer of fat there are spike proteins that are sticking out from the surface. And those spike proteins that extend from the surface of the virus actually allow the virus to attach to the host cell. And they have to find specific receptors. And receptors are proteins that are expressed on the surface of cells. And they're not there really for a virus to attach to them. But viruses have evolved ways in which they can find those receptors and then use them for their own benefit. 
And you can think about this as a lock and key kind of mechanism. So in this case, the spike protein that's sticking away from the virus is like the key. And it has to find the lock on the cell. And once the key is able to find the lock on the cell, it can unlock the cell. And that's what allows the virus to invade the cell. Once the virus gets in, it actually releases that layer of fat, and then the virus can release its genome into the cell, can release the RNA genome. And the RNA genome is like the blueprints for the virus. And once it has laid down the blueprints, then it's able to copy itself. And it continues to copy itself or replicate itself. And it makes lots and lots of copies from those blueprints. And then all of those new copies become encapsidated. They get wrapped up again to make the sphere. And then they pinch off from the cell. They take the fat right from the outside of the cell, the cell membrane, and they take those spike proteins with it. And now we've made new viruses in one cell that can go on and infect neighboring cells and new hosts whenever that original host is spewing the respiratory droplets out into the environment. If it wasn't so deadly, you could almost admire the, the elegance of the, the whole process. Exactly. And I, I do admire the elegance of the process. I think it's really fascinating. And that's one of the reasons that I love studying viruses is because I think it is, it's kind of like an art, right? And it's really quite beautiful. You know, you're talking about the fat protecting the, these uh, proteins and such. Is that why hand washing and soap and hot water that you know, basically takes away that fat layer, is that why that is such a good preventative measure? Yes, exactly. That's exactly why we want to make sure that we are washing our hands with soap and water because the soap is actually able to disrupt that fat layer. And so we can basically break the virus apart. And if we break the virus apart, then it's not going to be able to be transmitted. So it's extremely important to make sure that we're washing our hands, especially at times, of course, we're all social distancing at this point, but there are people that still have to go out to work. We have essential workers in the healthcare field. We have people that still have to go to work at the grocery stores, and then all of us still have to go out to the grocery stores or to the pharmacy or something. And so we should be really, really careful to wash our hands as soon as possible after we have any of those interactions. And in the absence of hand washing, hand sanitizer is a good alternative. And it's recommended that hand sanitizer should be at at least 70% alcohol-based. And using a hand sanitizer is a good secondary measure really to help um, prevent the transmission of the virus. You talked about this being sort of a new virus. I mean, it's called novel coronavirus. Is that one of the reasons why it is uh, so deadly for some people and, and others don't even know that they have the disease? In part, it's because it is a novel virus, right? And so we don't have pre-existing immunity to this virus. Although I will say that there are other coronaviruses that do circulate in the population. And so there are other coronaviruses, for instance, that cause things like a common cold. And it's thought that those viruses maybe are circulating more regularly in children. And that's why children might be protected from more of the severe cases of disease that we're seeing. However, the people that seem to be most susceptible to severe disease with coronavirus are those that have underlying conditions or those that are elderly. And the underlying conditions would be things like lung disease, heart disease, um, 
other types of things like being a smoker, those of those things are all really associated with um, higher levels of um, serious disease. And you probably have seen that there are some cases, though, of people that are relatively healthy that are also experiencing some types of fatal disease. And in those cases, what they're finding is that it might be due to a cytokine storm. And a cytokine storm is really the immune response. So it's a good thing, but then the immune response really doesn't slow down. So of course, it's great to have a robust immune response, but we have to be able to dial that back. And if the body can't dial back the immune response, then it can result in a cytokine storm. And that actually can lead to organ damage within the host. And that was seen with some other um, viral outbreaks like the 1918 influenza outbreak. And if you remember from that, uh, there were a lot of young individuals, young healthy men actually, that were experiencing really severe disease that was due to a cytokine storm. And a similar thing has also been seen in individuals infected with coronavirus. While we're on the subject, maybe talk about our immune systems. When we, when we do get to the other side of this, will people who have had the disease have built up an immunity? Or, or I mean, do we have to constantly keep fighting this? You know, could it keep coming back potentially? Yeah, that's a great question. That's the hope. I think that we're a little bit too early to know because we need longer term data to really understand if people will be protected and how long they will be protected. And there are many different factors that play into that. One of the factors is that the person has to develop a robust immune response during the initial infection. And that may be due to how many virions they originally saw in that infection. And they might need a higher load of virions in order to develop a really robust immune response. It also might have to do with the underlying health of the individual and just how good their immune system is overall. So there are lots of different factors and time will tell. And as we see these individuals that have recovered from coronavirus, we'll be able to determine whether or not they have antibodies that would be able to neutralize or really sort of dampen a secondary infection. One thing everybody hopes is that there's going to be some good that uh, comes out of this. Uh, so what do you think you and your fellow scientists might learn from this? Could it, could it lead to some important advances, do you think? I think it could definitely lead to some really important advances. And like I said, I think one of the main things is that this really highlights the need to do biomedical research it highlights the need to understand emerging viruses. We've seen a number of emerging viral infections in the past few decades, the SARS coronavirus, MERS, Zika virus. A number of these outbreaks, I think, really have to do with um, the human interaction with the environment, the changes to the climate, and how we are really taking over other parts of the environment and the impact that that's having on things like bats and that may be leading to this emergence. And so I think we need to be really aware of that and we need to really think about research in this area of emerging viruses and emerging pathogens in general. And if we can be out in front studying this kind of research, then we will be better able to combat it once these types of things happen, if we're having an epidemic or a pandemic, and we'll be able to respond more rapidly with the development of antivirals or the development of vaccines. 
you talked about, um, you know, uh, our interaction with the environment and with nature and with animals and, and the fact that this might have come from a bat that bit a live animal in a Chinese market. You know, who, who knows, obviously. And then I heard the other day that there was a tiger in the Bronx Zoo that had COVID-19. So that, that was a, a new twist to the story as well. Wow, I have not heard that. It was just in the news, I think, uh, the, the day before we are, are recording this. And this thing is changing all the time. It's, it's, a, it's a quickly developing story, certainly. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so, you know, the question is, if it spreads to other animals, will it then be able to spread from those animals back to humans? So there are definitely lots of interesting questions. And on the basic research side of things, of course, we can really study this novel coronavirus and compare it to the SARS coronavirus and start to understand the changes that occur really at the molecular level. And if we understand those types of changes, then like I said, we'll be able to kind of plan for that. And then we can use that information to inform the development of antivirals and vaccines so that if there are any mutations or alterations in the virus over time, then again, we would be ready for it. Tell us about your research. I know you have an active lab with students and postdocs and all kinds of things. Uh, what kind of research do you do and how are you doing it now that you're not able to be in the lab? Are you having to find new ways to continue the work? My lab at the University of Maine is made up of graduate students and undergraduates, and I have a team of 12 students currently. And our research is focused on understanding how viruses infect cells and cause disease. And we use a model virus called JC polyomavirus to answer these types of questions. And we're interested in understanding how viruses attach to the host cell, so that lock and key mechanism that I talked about. Once they attach to the host cell, how are they able to enter into the host cell? They have to get through the host cell plasma membrane. How do they cross that plasma membrane? Once they get into the cell, how do they traffic into the cell? right, to find the proper compartment. And then once they find the proper compartment, in this case, we study a DNA virus, so it has to get to the nucleus of the cell. And then we want to understand how the virus hijacks the cellular machinery in order to drive its own replication process. And so we're asking all of these different types of questions using cells. So we work with human cells in the lab. We don't have an animal model to study this virus because it's a human-specific virus. And we do all of our experiments in cell culture, and we're able to use this as a really excellent model to understand more about how virus-host cell interactions lead to viral disease, but it's also an excellent model to train students. And it's been really wonderful to train the next generation of biomedical scientists and people that are gonna go on to be researchers and medical students and work hopefully in the government and the CDC, and they'll be able to make really wonderful contributions to all of these future uh, questions and potential outbreaks that we may have on the horizon. So maybe just talking about how you're dealing with doing your work and, and your colleagues and the students that, that you have working with you, uh, what kinds of questions or issues are your students confronting you with, and how are you hoping to help them? Is it much more than academics and research going on that you're having to deal with? 
Of course, over the past couple of weeks, we have been winding things down in the lab. So we had some time to finish up some critical experiments, but due to social distancing, the students were working in shifts. So we had generated a calendar and students were going in three hour shifts to just finish up the critical experiments. But now as this outbreak has gotten worse, we have wound up everything in the lab. And now we're just going in to check on essential equipment and make sure our critical stocks are maintained. So the students have really transitioned to working remotely. And so they're all getting used to that change. They're doing their best to work on writing projects to the extent possible. So they're writing up papers. Some of my students are working on their theses. So they're spending time writing that, writing reviews. And then my students also, some of them are taking classes. So they are transitioning to the online learning that we transitioned to after spring break. And they're all really sort of navigating that and in addition, some of the graduate students in my lab are teaching assistants, and so they're also learning how to teach online. And it's a totally different format, and so the students are facing a number of challenges because they all were displaced from their, their dorms and their classrooms, and they're trying to navigate this new world of online learning. And at the same time, many of them were really excited to continue with their research projects. And now that has come to a screeching halt. And so they're not able to be working in the lab and they're just trying to do whatever they can do remotely. And so for some people that means writing. In other cases, the students are able to do a little bit of their work um, just in silico, just so using computer programs, we do a little bit of work that's related to bioinformatics. And so those students are able to continue on with those projects as well. How much of what you potentially would be doing in normal times are, are you able to do 50% of what you hope to 75? Can you even measure? I don't even think we can measure. I think if we were in the lab, of course, normally we're in the lab and we're doing experiments the majority of the time. And But now we're just really shifting and we're trying to spend our time writing and doing all of the work that we can remotely. Because I know that by, when we do get back into the lab, everyone's going to be so anxious to get back to the bench and do all of these experiments that they have been planning for all this time. I don't know how much you've had to deal with stuff outside of the research and the academics, you know, stress-related type of issues and life issues, that kind of thing. Uh, but has that been something you've had to encounter and, and help folks with, including yourself? <laughs> yeah, so our students are definitely stressed. And the transition to online learning really has led to more work for them. And they don't have the university as a place where they can go and have this quiet, focused time anymore. Some of them are now living at home with their families and their parents, and they're trying to do online Zoom classes, and they may have a, you know, a family member walking through the video, and they're trying to go through their class. Of course, we also have people that are at home with children, like my children are home right now from school. And so we're also trying to navigate homeschooling and keeping our kids entertained at the same time that we're teaching online and trying to mentor our laboratory students. So it's definitely presenting a number of challenges. And we're working really closely with our students to help them really navigate this stressful time. And we're doing our best to try to minimize all of the stress for them because of course, I think at this point, we're all just trying to survive as best we can. And we need to really lower our expectations for what we can get done during this time. Have you and your uh, colleagues at UMaine been able to connect and support each other? Yes, we have. Um, I've been, we've actually had a number of Zoom meetings. So we've, we just had a faculty meeting last week to touch base and really start to think about some of the concerns of our students and think about the ways in which we can support them better. We also have been working to just support one another. So some of us are working on projects remotely. 
we're working on collaborative grant applications, and we're also forming some online groups to get together to write grants and things like that. What, if anything, uh, gives you hope for the future, that there's going to be some positive outcomes from this, this whole ordeal? Well, I think everyone is gaining a deeper sense of gratitude for the things that we are normally able to do. And I don't think we'll take advantage of um, or take for granted some of the things that maybe we have in the past, like being able to go to work, for instance, and being able to carry out our experiments and to work with our colleagues. Um, You know, we enjoy the company of our colleagues and our students, and I don't think that we will ever really take that for granted again. And I think that, of course, we're all going to approach our work with a new sense of invigoration and motivation. I think this really highlights how important research is, and it highlights how important virology research is specifically. So I think that my students are going to be really excited to get back to work and contribute to the field of virology. I imagine you're going to be very busy, but we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, and good luck with everything. Of course. Thank you. We hope to get back to a regular schedule of putting out podcasts very soon. But as always, thanks for checking us out. All of our episodes can be found in many of the places you get your podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Please reach out if you have any questions or comments at mainquestion at maine.edu. We'll catch you next time around on The Main Question.